Hello and welcome to episode 86 of Pay-Per-View, in which I review newspaper headlines and current events in a weekly podcast. I've got a couple of announcements before we start. My brand new book, Reality Check, is now available for pre-order. I'll talk more about it when it comes out, which will be in a couple of weeks when it comes out properly. But Reality Check, I couldn't have chosen two words to better describe this book. It is a reality check. And I think even some people who look at alternative information will find the book a reality check, a reality check in certain areas. Uh, and it's up to date. I talk about current events as well as um, looking at reality and what that is. So that's available for pre-order now at pay-per-view.uk. And I'm going to be doing a reality check podcast. Uh, I don't talk about reality in this podcast. I like to keep this podcast to the world that we see on the news and current events but I'm going to talk about reality and current events from the perspective of an understanding of reality and why this global cult that I talk about which has this agenda of human control and suppression which is the very agenda that I've been talking about since well half my life really looking at it but in terms of this podcast since 2018 when this podcast started relating current events and news headlines to talking about how they relate to the agenda that's what i do in this podcast um but i'm only talking about why this global cult's agenda even exists ultimately what reality is and lots of other fascinating subjects so look out for that the first episode will be uploaded 7 p.m next monday so with that said let's get on with the episode just stop oil or as i like to say just stop just stop oil this is in The Guardian. Just Stop Oil protest stops traffic in North London. Just Stop Oil activists have glued themselves to a road in North London on the 22nd day of the group's campaign of civil unrest. About 20 protesters stopped traffic in Upper Street in Islington, North London on Saturday. The Metropolitan Police said Met officers are at the scene at Upper Street and one where there are 16 Just Stop Oil protesters who have sat down on the road, four of whom are locked onto each other and six are glued to the road. It went on. Traffic in both directions is blocked. Police are in the process of arresting those who are not glued or locked on for willful obstruction of the highway. A specialist team is now on the scene in dealing with those who are glued and locked on and they will be arrested when freed. The article continues. It was the latest development in a two-week-long string of protests organised by Just Stop Oil, which is demanding that the government halt new fossil fuel licensing and production. The Met later said the road had been cleared and traffic was flowing in both directions. It added... Police have arrested 17 protesters for willful obstruction of the highway. They have been taken into custody at Central London Police Station. The article continues. Last week, activists from Just Stop Oil threw tomato soup over Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers, which was protected by glass at the National Gallery in London. The gallery has since confirmed the painting was not damaged, saying in a statement that there is some minor damage to the frame, but the painting is unharmed. There's another article here in the Daily Mail about... Just Stop Oil. Vegans and Just Stop Oil eco-zealots join forces to bring Central London to a standstill by pouring milk all over the roads and covering shop fronts with paint. Vegans and Just Stop Oil eco-zealots have joined forces to bring Central London to a standstill. Protesters from the groups offshoots of extinction rebellion blocked roads and bridges in the capital in order to highlight their demand that the government stops new oil and gas projects. Members of the environmental protest groups Animal Rebellion and Just Stop Oil poured milk on Regent Street and St James's Street as they marched through central London. The shop front of William Evans' gun room was covered with green paint and red paint was poured on the floors of Farlow's fishing, hunting and shooting supply store as well as placing paper flowers outside. The group say this is to expose the outdated practices of hunting, shooting and fishing while also showing that a better world is possible. Animal Rebellion say the act highlights the need for urgent and immediate transition towards a plant-based food system away from the current one that includes the inefficient and unnecessary exploitation of non-human animals. Non-human animals, what does that mean? All animals are non-human. They also said the outside of the shop had been covered in origami flowers to represent the nature that could be restored and flourish if we move into a plant-based future free from so-called blood sports. Robert Gordon from York said a plant-based food system could feed more people using less land for less money instead of trapping farmers in dependence on outdated and inefficient subsidies. Rano, Shower, Dana and Defra should be 
taking bold steps to assist farmers in the transition to a plant-based future with a meaningful and supportive subsidy system. It's time we have a government that backs farmers rather than leaving them on their backs. The vegan activists who poured milk all over the floor and selfridges in Fortnum and Mason were also arrested by police. Hundreds of protesters from Animal Rebellion, an offshoot of the Extinction Rebellion group that describes itself as a mass movement using non-violent civil disobedience to call for a just, sustainable plant-based food system, gathered at Green Park in London. Before marching through central London, Sofia Fernandez-Pontes from Madeira and Steve Bone from Essex, the duo who poured out milk over the two high-end London department stores in a protest against dairy products were arrested by police. So there is some good news then. The climate group has two demands, the first being for the government to support farmers and fishing communities to move away from animal farming and fishing as part of an urgent and immediate transition to a plant-based food system. Secondly, the group wants the government to commit to rewild the freed-up land and ocean as part of a broader programme of a wildlife restoration and carbon drawdown. Protester Catherine Cannon, a teacher from South Somerset, said Liz Truss and Ranil Jawadena are burying their heads in the sand of the climate, ecological and cost of living crises. They should be listening when the University of Harvard is telling us a plant-based food system and rewilding is the key solution to the climate crisis, not ignoring it. We're here acting for all life because the government is not. We are at a crossroads in history where we will choose abundance in life or drought, famine and death. We urge the British government to choose a plant-based food system. A plant-based food system is one that puts the environment, animals and farmers first. It can only be achieved by massive changes to our current subsidy system. A Metropolitan Police spokesperson said a 40-year-old man and a 26-year-old woman were arrested in Green Park on Saturday 8th of October on suspicion of criminal damage and theft. They have been taken into custody. This relates to an incident at a business premises on Piccadilly, London, W1A on Friday 7th of October. Animal Rebellion confirmed the arrests on their social media page, tweeting, Happening now, as hundreds gather at Green Park in London for the love and resistance today, the two milk pourers from yesterday's actions have been sought out and arrested by police. Dylan Parsons, 21, from Preston, a spokesperson for AR and a film production student at the University of the Creative Arts, said he's been involved with the campaign group for two years. He said, we are currently at Trafalgar Square. There are, I'd say, a couple of hundred activists, so we are all set on the ground and demanding the government transition to a plant-based future because the UK government has proved they don't know how to respond to crises anymore. We've seen through the cost of living crisis and the climate crisis that they are not treating the public well and they have their own pockets as their first priorities. We know that animal farming and fishing is the key cause to the climate crisis, so if we transition away to a plant-based food system, we can not only stop 76 billion animals a year from being killed, we can feed the whole population several times over, we can free up 76% of global agricultural land to give every person in all future generations a chance of having a better future on this planet. He said he was not present when the shops were vandalised, but added, if the government responded to us and gave us a chance of a plant-based future, we wouldn't have to do actions like this. But causing this level of disruption, if this is what is going to get us heard, that's the actions we've got to take. Well, here's some facts from the new book about this idea that we need to go vegan to save the planet. Dr. Frank Mitloner, Professor of Animal Science and Air Quality Specialist at UC Davis, has pointed out that if even 10% of Americans went vegan, it would only cause a 0.26% change in US emissions. Typical cow's water footprint is green water, in other words, rainwater. Animal feed is grown almost entirely with rainwater, including feed in feedlots. A cow urinates out the water, which is nutritious for the soil due to the high nitrogen content. 94.5% of California almonds' water usage is, is not green water. 1,097 litres per quarter pound of almond, almost 10 times more than beef. So think about that, environmentalists, next time you water an almond milk latte. In Chile, avocados, for example, are extremely popular, but drink up to the country's scarce water resources during production. One estimate I saw said 70 litres of water are needed to produce one avocado. Beef has much higher nutritional and protein content, 86% compared to 18.18% for rice. 122 litres for beef compared to 90 litres for rice, which only contains one-fifth of the protein. Cows also produce highly nutrient-dense organ meats like liver, 82% protein. 90% of animal feed is non-human edible. Husks and other material from corn growth and resources to grow almonds can be fed to cows. 
almond hulls can also be fed to cows. Soybean skins and beet pulp can be fed to cows. Oatmeal, oat hulls and straw can be fed to cows. So too can scraps from bakeries, corn cobs, cottonseed, brewers, grains, leftovers. 43.2 billion pounds of human inedible material are taken by cows and turned into meat and dairy. Animals take grain calories and convert them into a high quality source of protein. Two thirds of agricultural land is marginal land, meaning crops cannot be grown in that area as it is too rocky, hilly, the soil is not good enough, or there is not enough water. Only food producing land of all agricultural land is land is ruminant livestock. Cows eat grass which is high in cellulose, which they can digest and convert as microbes in their digestive tract. Uh, as their digestive tract will make that conversion. One third of land is arable land, meaning it can be used to grow crops. Ruminant livestock in the two thirds of land recycle non-human edible feed and convert it into highly digestible, highly nutritious edible foods such as beef and dairy. You can't just grow what you want where you want. Land used for livestock which feed on grass would go to waste if not populated by that livestock. Cows also produce manure, which is a natural fertiliser for growing fruits and vegetables. Half the fertiliser that makes crops like grains possible comes from livestock. Different areas of the world constitute different livestock emission percentages. 80% of livestock emissions occur in developing countries. Crop agriculture accounts for more emissions than livestock, 4.7% of emissions. And livestock agriculture only accounts for 3.9% of emissions. Cows only account for 2% of emissions and methane only 10%. Of that 10%, 27% is enteric fermentation. In other words, methane from livestock burps, which is 2.7% overall. Methane from livestock is part of a natural cycle and not from vehicles which use fossil fuels. Not that that affects the temperature, but they do. Grass receives carbon from the air through photosynthesis. Cows eat the grass and its carbon, which is converted by the cow's body into methane, carbon dioxide with four hydrogen atoms. The cow burps and releases methane into the air. In 10 to 12 years' time, this is broken down into water and carbon dioxide. Carbon is then received from the atmosphere by the grass and so on. The livestock are not adding new carbon to the atmosphere. The methane emitted came from the carbon the grass got from the air in the first place. The same number of cows cannot add additional warming to the earth over the last <laughs> it's just nonsense that the idea of human caused climate change when you actually look at it over the last nearly 20 and i take it apart in my first book over the last nearly 20 years the number of cows in the united states has remained mostly the same if food wastage were a country it would be the third largest emitting country in the world while people go hungry Fruits and vegetables constitute 42% of food waste. Cereal grains like bread and rice make up 22% and roots and tubers like potatoes make up 18%, meaning only 18% one is due to animals. Vegans and vegetarians support meatless Mondays, but perhaps no waste Wednesdays might be more beneficial for everyone. There's a few facts vegan climate activists might ponder on instead of blocking roads and causing disruption for people and stopping people being able to visit relatives in hospital and stopping people being able to go to hospital and instead of calling for the advancement of the agenda of the very establishment they claim to oppose. Well, there's a very simple equation here. When a protest supports the cult's agenda, the protest receives coverage by the media and the police do nothing. When a protest challenges the cult's agenda, then the protest is demonised by the media and the police attack protesters. Why are the Just Stop Oil protests being covered by the media with the police doing nothing? Well, I suggest that it's happening because the plan is for the government to step in, offering to ban public protests when the public are fed up with the Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion antics, thus generating support for a ban on protests. And this ban will incorporate protests challenging the cult's agenda like lockdown protests when the COVID hoax makes a return or another virus hoax if the cult go down that road again, which they may well do. We hear all this talk about sustainable energy, fossil fuels, renewable energy, etc. 
and a cost of living crisis when free energy technology has existed for decades. I know this for a fact. The only cost is the initial setup and you have free warmth and power forever. This technology is being suppressed while the public are being lectured to and having their society transformed in the image of the cult's agenda on the basis that fossil fuels are responsible for climate change. Well, let the public use free energy technology then, which doesn't rely on any fossil fuels, but uses the natural energy field of the planet to run and produce power, thus cutting a colossal amount of global carbon emissions. And I know from my own source that free energy technology exists, but here's an article in The Guardian from 2006. I only found this while I was putting together this segment of the episode, but it's interesting. And I wasn't obviously expecting to see this in a mainstream newspaper website, but here we are. This is the article, Scientists Flock to Test Free Energy Discovery. A man who claims to have developed a free energy technology which could power everything from mobile phones to cars has received more than 400 applications from scientists to test it. Sean McCarthy says that no one was more sceptical than he when Steorn, his small high-tech firm in Dublin, hit upon a way of generating clean, free and constant energy from the interaction of magnetic fields. That's what I said just now, the energy field, the magnetic fields of the planet. It wasn't so much a eureka moment as a get back in there and check your instruments moment, although in far more colourful language, said McCarthy. But when he attempted to share his findings, he said scientists either put the phone down on him or refused to endorse him publicly in case they damaged their academic reputations. This is what happens in science all the time. If you are pursuing something that supports the cult's agenda or pursuing something that at least doesn't challenge it, then you'll get funding and coverage and your career will be intact but if you use technology or if you make some scientific discovery that does challenge the cult's agenda you're on your own and this is one reason why technology that would help people and medical uh, discoveries that would help people don't get into the public arena anyway the article continues it says last week at the time that the article was written he took out a four-page advert in the economist magazine challenging the scientific community to examine his technology mccarthy claims it provides five times the amount of energy a mobile phone battery generates for the same size and does not have to be recharged within 36 hours of his advert appearing he had been contacted by 420 scientists in europe america and australia and a further 4606 people had registered to receive the results well, that was in 2006, and I don't know about you, but I don't remember hearing anything about free energy technology in the news since then. The fact this technology is suppressed while global society is being transformed on the basis of humans causing climate change through fossil fuel use tells you everything. It's not about climate change. It's not about renewable sources of energy. It's about justifying everything on the cult's agenda, which even of course climate change does under the guise of fighting climate change. And the next subject this week is another vegan related story. This is in terms of 3D printing. This is in Financial Times. Redefined Meat brings 3D printed vegan cuts to restaurants. An Israeli, that's not a surprise, startup has launched a 3D printed plant-based meat making whole cuts of the vegan products available for the first time in restaurants in Europe and Israel. Redefined Meat, which produced its first 3D printed plant-based steak in 2018, can print 10 kilograms of plant-based meat an hour. Its beef cuts aim for the fibrous texture of real meat and are made from soy and pea protein, chickpeas, beetroot, yeast and coconut fat. The company, which raised nearly $30 million in early stage funding in February, has a partnership with food flavouring company Govorden, a company connected to Bill Gates, by the way, and claims to have the secret of juiciness in meat. Dishes made from its products, including beef and lamb flank cuts, as well as minced beef and pork, will be available in restaurants such as Marco Pierre White Steakhouses in the UK and Michelin-starred restaurants Ron Gastropat in the Netherlands and Facile in Germany. The launch comes as the plant-based protein market becomes increasingly crowded and multinational food companies such as Nestle get in on the act. Corporations owned by the cult. Beyond Meat in the US paved the way with its plant-based burgers but until now offerings from the plant-based meat industry have largely been alternatives to minced meat products such as beef patties and chicken nuggets. The holy ground for the industry has been to produce structured meats that resemble cuts of beef or chicken both visually and in texture. 
While plant-based alternatives simulating cuts of meat are available in supermarkets, they mostly lack the fibrous texture of the real thing. Food entrepreneurs and scientists trying to recreate the texture of meat are looking at the structure of mycelium, a network of fungal threads, and turning to 3D printing. 3D printing can also be used to recreate the marbling of steak or the defined areas of fat and muscle of bacon, according to research group ID Tech X. Technology is progressing quickly in the plant-based meat industry and in the next few years could be pivotal in deciding whether plant-based meat is able to disrupt the global meat industry, it's said. Other startups working on 3D printed food include Spain's Nova Meat, while Israel's, again, Alain Farms has created a 3D printed ribeye steak made from incubated cow cells. As Shah Ben Shikrit, chief executive and co-founder of Redefined Meats, said global meat consumption needed to be reduced to help with environmental problems such as deforestation. Most of the crops produced to go to animal feed, he says. We have a genuine solution that today, not in 2030, 2030 that year that keeps coming up all over the place, preserves all the culinary aspects of meat we know and love, but eliminates cattle as a means of production. So why 3D printing? Our world is becoming ever more synthetic. I talked in the new book about the reason for this and the true depths of the synthetic agenda. Already we have synthetic crops and food supplies, synthetically modified trees and insects, synthetic drugs, vitamins and supplements, blood, synthetic genetics, and now synthetic organs printed by a 3D printer. Synthetic food will be offered as a solution to the food supply chain crisis, manufactured in ways I described in episode 84 and in the new book. The COVID fake vaccine is injecting synthetic genetic material into the human body, as I describe in Reality Check. I also look in the new book at the deeper levels of the synthetic human agenda. One of the main reasons for making the human form synthetic so that it can cope with the exposure to technologically generated distorted electromagnetic information fields, frequency fields, wave fields from 5G, 6G and 7G, millimeter wave technology, which is enormously more harmful even than Wi-Fi, mobile and mobile phone radiation, as part of the smart grid of total human control and surveillance as per the transhuman agenda and great reset digital ID social credit system agenda, which I talk about in the new book, and I also talk in the new book, and I'm going to talk about this in the Reality Check podcast, about how technologically generated electromagnetic fields from Wi-Fi, 5G, etc. actually can impact on the body, because unless you go into the deeper levels of that, which I'm going to do in the Reality Check podcast, and I do in the new book, you can't really understand how can have an effect on health. And the next subject this week is vaccine injuries. This is in the Daily Mail. NHS should treat vaccine injuries the same way it does long COVID by introducing clinics to help affected patients' MP claims. The NHS should launch specialised clinics to people who have suffered long-lasting illness after getting a COVID jab, an MP said today. So Christopher Choate, Tory MP for Christchurch in Dorset, called for the health service to take seriously the need to help the unlucky few, not a few at all, who've become seriously unwell after getting the life-saving vaccines. Unprecedented numbers, more like. He also said it should be easier for anyone who's been physically or mentally disabled by the jabs to access a £120,000 payout, the one-off compensation victims can currently get. So Christopher made the comments at the all-party parliamentary group for the victims of vaccine damage, which he chairs. He said the NHS has so far rejected calls for specialist clinics, despite setting up similar ones for those suffering from the long-lasting effects of a COVID infection. More than 136 million COVID vaccines have been dished out in the UK since the pandemic began, but didn't. It's a lot less than they say have actually taken the vaccine. Real world evidence has repeatedly proven they are safe and save lives. Like what? Like what? They don't mention what the evidence is. Because they don't know. Yet, like with every medicine, there are risks. Scientists insist when it comes to the COVID vaccines, however, that they are timely. Hundreds of recipients have reported suffering severe complications, including blood clots, heart inflammation, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Which, the last one, Guillain-Barre syndrome, is a common vaccine side effect. Some Britons have even died from blood clots, an extremely rare side effect 
of AstraZeneca's jab so eventually restrictive for the other 40s. It's quite common for something extremely rare, isn't it? More than 1,200 claims for compensation have been made to the UK's vaccine damage payment scheme. It entitles families to £120,000 payment if a loved one dies or is left significantly disabled as a result of government-recommended jabs, not just COVID ones. The first COVID vaccine payout was to Vicky Spit, the wife of rock musician Lord Zion. Interesting name. Who died from blood clot following his AstraZeneca jab. Dozens attended the APPG in Portcullis House with Sir Christopher, saying that many were victims or bereaved as a result of doing the right thing by the government and having their vaccines. He called for the NHS to take seriously and recognise the need for effective help and advice for those suffering from the side effects of the COVID vaccine. He said the government has set up clinics for long COVID and have asked that they should set up equivalent clinics for those who are suffering from the consequences of taking vaccines. He said the NHS have so far refused to launch vaccine damaged clinics and added, that one of the purposes of this APPG to try to get the government to change its mind and in a sense realise the reality that sadly COVID vaccines can cause damage. Well, good luck there. Fortunately, this is only a relatively small minority of people, he goes on to say, but these are not the absolutely safe and effective vaccines that they were launched to be. The article continues, the health service has launched 19 long COVID clinics to help those battling fatigue, brain fog, breathing difficulties and muscle aches months after being infected. Statisticians estimate that 2.3 million people in the UK were still suffering long-lasting COVID symptoms by September, with half of them lasting for at least a year. But the actual figure is widely debated, with some experts saying they are likely to be a huge overestimation, given symptoms like headaches and tiredness are also linked with lots of other conditions. It is unclear how many people are living with harm from the vaccine, but campaign group vaccine injured bereaved say it is a small number. Shows what they know. Around 460,000 reports of side effects have been made to the UK's medicines watchdog and they say that only around 10 to 1% of adverse events reported. So you have to times any number reported to the VAERS system in Britain or the yellow card system in America or by anything by up to 10 or 100, any figure at any point in time. And it will be closer to 1% for this vaccine, fake vaccine, because of the pressure on doctors not to report adverse reactions. But the vast majority of these are for a sore arm and general flu-like symptoms which are commonly short-lasting post-immunisation. What about myocarditis then? Is that just a sore arm? What about about the people who died of heart attacks like the radio DJ I just talked about? Is that just a sore arm? What about children who've died after taking the vaccine? Is that just a sore arm? And the reports are not proof that the vaccine is to blame. Well, of course not, because we can't blame the vaccine. Everyone is urged to share any symptoms that show up after the jab in order to allow health chiefs to track trends. It is this mechanism that allowed the UK's medicines watchdog to spot the blood clot linked to AstraZeneca. Anyone left unwell from a vaccine is advised to reach out to their GP for advice. Who will tell them the vaccine is not to blame? Even if they know it is. All these experts that are baffled at why so many people have experienced so many reactions after taking the vaccine. None of them none of them have any idea. None of them. Those that still have a job, that is. Those that still have a job have no idea. The vaccines, four have been used in the UK, including ones made by Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna, have been credited with saving more than 100,000 lives across the UK. Evidence for that? Forty-five people in England and Wales have died due to a COVID vaccine side effect, according to the latest data from the Office for National Statistics. Again times that by massive numbers because only a tiny fraction of the effects are ever reported. So Christopher added, we are not only concerned in the APPG about those who have suffered themselves and lost loved ones, we also want to do something to ensure for those that for those who have permanent conditions as a result of adverse reactions, we want to remove the 60% disablement bar to financial help. The article continues, the government's compensation is only given if people are 60% mentally or physically disabled, which is determined by doctors. So good luck there. 
Sir Christopher also invited Dr. Asim Malhotra, an NHS-trained cardiologist, to give a talk on curing the pandemic of misinformation on COVID through real evidence-based medicine. Dr. Malhotra, who promoted COVID jabs on TV during the early days of the pandemic, let's not forget that, argued that people were more likely to suffer a serious reaction to a COVID vaccine than be hospitalised with the virus. Dr. Malhotra argued that Pfizer's COVID vaccine should be immediately suspended until all of the raw data on the vaccine's effectiveness is made available. His own concerns were raised following the sudden death of his GP father, Dr. Kailash Chand, who had worked as deputy chairman of the British Medical Association and died aged 73 in July 2021. Dr. Chand died after suffering a cardiac arrest six months after receiving the second dose of the vaccine. Dr. Malhotra now believes the jab is to blame despite originally branding it nonsense. Well, at least he's not baffled. The mRNA jabs named by Pfizer and Moderna have been linked to a rare heart complication called myocarditis. So rare, it's becoming increasingly common. But the risk of the heart inflammation condition appeared highest in younger people, especially boys. It sparked a huge debate over the merits of vaccinating children, given that their risk of falling seriously ill with the virus is tiny. Health chiefs eventually approved jabs for the over fives. They're moving to vaccinate babies now. After data showed the benefits were still greater than the risk, but stressed the offer was non-urgent. Myocarditis was not spotted in trials of the jabs, which means they don't know whether it can cause it or not, because the pores of those given the jab were too small. Why? It was only when the jabs had been rolled out more widely that the side effects started to appear. That's the cover story. We didn't know. What about the 158,000 adverse effects, myocarditis among them, that the Pfizer documents released through Freedom of Information, which they tried to suppress, detailed? There's another COVID vaccine, fake vaccine related story here. This is in the Daily Mail. Radio DJ dies of heart attack on air. Shocker's local station announces 55-year-old breakfast host passed away while presenting his programme in the morning. A local radio host died from a suspected heart attack while presenting his daily breakfast show. Tim Goff, 55, was presenting his morning programme for Gen X Radio Suffolk when the music stopped playing halfway through a song about an hour into his slot. The music resumed a few minutes later, but Mr Goff, who had been speaking just moments earlier, did not return and later at the station confirmed he had passed away. Gen X Radio Suffolk posted on their social media accounts, it is with the heaviest of hearts they have to inform you, our dear friend and breakfast host Tim Goff passed away this morning whilst presenting his programme. Our love to his family, son, sister, brother and mum. Tim was doing what he loved, he was 55 years old. The host, whose radio career dated back to 1986, had wished his listeners a good morning and was excited for the radio station to launch on DAB in a week. He gave weather updates across Suffolk and just minutes before Grey Day by madness stopped abruptly. He was talking about famous couples who have married and buried Suffolk over the years. The father of one spoke his final words after playing Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, commenting that it was the birthday of bass guitarist Bill Wyman, a Suffolk resident. James Hazel, managing director of Gen X Radio Suffolk, was on air from 9am. Shortly before 11am, he informed listeners of the devastating blow. He said, I speak to you this morning with, frankly, some tragic news. At 10 to 8 this morning, in the middle of Tim Goff's breakfast show, it's broadcast, he suffered a catastrophic cardiac episode as it had been described. Despite the best efforts of the paramedics who were on site very quickly, some 20 to 25 minutes doing what they could to revive, it was not to be. It was in the middle of this programme he was doing something he loved to do. I really have no words at this stage. He was 55 years old, very healthy. Who knows why these things happen, but they have. Well, I think the pharmaceutical cartel might have an idea. Mr. Hazel told the East Anglian Daily Times that Mr. Goff was a hugely experienced and highly talented broadcaster with an army of fans for his daily programme. To know Tim personally, as I did very closely for over 30 years, he said, was to know a warm, caring, fun guy who myself and my family love daily. We are heartbroken by the news. The article continues. His profile on the radio's website says, Tim is Suffolk, born and bred and grew up in a village close to Bury St Edmunds. His radio career has spanned over a quarter of a century and began at Radio Orwell in 1986. That's appropriate. He went on to present the breakfast show on Saxon Radio and SGRFM, as well as appearing on Smooth Radio and various other radio stations in the East Midlands. It added that the breakfast show on Gen X Radio Suffolk was the first time Mr Goff got back behind the microphone in over a decade. Condolences and tributes quickly poured in from fans in the local radio, which launched in January this year, following the sad announcement. Linda wrote on Facebook, such sad news, it was so nice to hear his cheerful voice first thing in the mornings. Kellyanne tweeted, 
My darling friend doing what he loved doing, but I can't comprehend the loss. Phil said that it was so, so sad. I really enjoyed his breakfast show, RIP. Another story here about the COVID fake vaccine. This is in the Daily Mail. Pfizer and Moderna launched trials to track whether health issues arise years after getting their COVID vaccines. Well, why wasn't this established in the original trials? I look at some of these trials in the new book. They were a joke. And part of the trial is the fake vaccine rollout itself. Pfizer and Moderna have launched trials to determine whether there are any long-term negative health impacts associated with the COVID vaccines, fake vaccine. The studies will involve monitoring the small number of Americans who suffered rare side effects after receiving the shots over the past two years. Both firms are required to carry out this long-term research by the Food and Drug Administration as a condition of approval earlier this year. Inflammation of the heart has been the most common serious adverse effect reported from the shots, though it is still very rare. Uh, it's so rare, a lot of people have reported it. That rare. Anyway, the article continues. A study by British Columbia Centre for Disease Control in Canada found that 58 of every million recipients of Moderna's two-shot vaccine developed the condition. Well, according to the CDC in British Columbia and Canada, you know, there's every chance that it's actually far higher than that. The same study found that 21 of every million recipients of the original two-dose Pfizer vaccine also suffered heart issue. Cases were most common among men under the age of 30, affecting more than 250 per every 1 million men aged 18 to 29. The CDC said it has recorded around 1,000 cases of heart inflammation among under-18s who received COVID shots. While these cases usually resolve themselves without medical intervention, some fear there could be long-term damage. Moderna based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, has already launched two trials tracking its shots adverse effects, the most recent in September. New York City's Pfizer told NBC it will launch a trial in the coming months that includes 500 teens and young adults under the age of 21. The firms will follow some patients for up to five years, but results are expected to start coming in as early as next year, NBC reports. Both companies used mRNA technology to develop their shots. While mRNA has existed for decades, the COVID vaccines were the first to use the technology to develop a medical product used at this scale. Experts believe mRNA is perfectly safe for use, though the little precedent in using it for other medication left many Americans uneasy about the shots. Billions of doses of mRNA vaccines have now been administered worldwide, with very few side effects reported. Myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscles, is the most commonly reported severe vaccine-related adverse effect. The condition occurs when the middle layer of the heart wall becomes inflamed. Sufferers may feel shortness of breath, fatigue and chest pain, among other symptoms. It usually resolves on its own, but in rare causes it can lead to a heart attack, stroke or even death. Pericarditis occurs when the pericardium, the outer layer of heart tissue, becomes swollen. It has similar symptoms to myocarditis and is also a relatively mild condition that will often resolve itself. Both conditions are known to appear in people who have recently suffered a viral infection like COVID or the flu. Some studies have suggested COVID is significantly more likely to cause myocarditis than the shots themselves. A study published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology found that rates of the conditions after vaccination were most common in younger people. The concern about young people who are less likely to get severe COVID has led to some countries limiting the shot for certain age groups. Denmark and Norway have already banned COVID vaccines for North seniors, while Sweden has stopped recommending them for 12 to 17 year olds. Devion Miller, 29, Detroit, Michigan, began suffering fatigue, shortness of breath and dizziness two days after receiving the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine last October. He was rushed to the hospital where he was diagnosed with both myocarditis and pericarditis. Doctors advised Mr. Miller against receiving a second shot of the COVID vaccine, NBC reports. Isaiah Harris, who was 18 at the time of Springfield, Arkansas, also Arkansas, also suffered a case of vaccine onset myocarditis last year. He told 4029 News, I was actually driving down the interstate and all of a sudden my heart rate just went way up and it felt like it was beating out of my chest. I woke up the next morning and I could barely breathe. The teen was rushed to a local emergency room where doctors determined that he was suffering a heart attack caused by myocarditis. Only a day earlier, he had received a second dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. A report published in February this year tied the deaths of two teens, one in Connecticut and one from Michigan, to the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine as well. The pair each died within a week of receiving the shot. Scientists determined that they suffered toxic cardiomyopathy caused by an immune response to the vaccine. The condition occurs when a person's heart muscle can no longer properly pump blood across the body.
does the heart pump blood across the body? There's some debate about that. Anyway, that's for another day. Florida Surgeon General Dr. Joseph Ledapo last month recommended against people under 40 getting the shots. However, the research paper used to justify the move is widely denounced by scientists as flawed. The long-term safety trials carried out by Moderna and Pfizer will be the first to determine the true risk of receiving the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. The shots were a novel product that first became available in late 2020 on an emergency authorization approval. While the firms went through rigorous testing to get approval for their shots, long-term data is still unavailable as the earliest recipients are still only two years removed from getting vaccinated. Another one, another vaccine story here. This is actually on the British Heart Foundation website. Extreme heart care disruption linked to 30,000 excess deaths involving heart disease. Since the pandemic began, it says here, there have been just over 30,000 excess deaths involving heart disease, on average over 230 additional deaths a week above expected heart disease death rates. Heart disease is among the most prominent diseases involved in the high numbers of excess deaths since the start of the pandemic, the analysis shows. While COVID-19 infection, it says here, again, was likely a significant factor in excess coronary heart disease-related deaths during the first year of the pandemic, COVID infections are no longer a driving force behind the excess heart disease death rate. The report says that significant and widespread disruption to heart care services has driven the ongoing surge in excess deaths involving heart disease in England. Latest figures show that average ambulance response times for suspected heart attacks have risen to 48 minutes in England against a target of 18 minutes, while the vast backlog of time-sensitive cardiac care has grown by almost 50% since the pandemic began to nearly 350,000 people. Unacceptably long waits for diagnosis and treatment of conditions like coronary heart disease and abnormal heart rhythms increase the risk of someone developing permanent heart damage, becoming disabled from heart failure and even dying while waiting for vital care. There are also millions of missing heart patients, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, who have struggled to access care for conditions that put people at much greater risk of a future heart attack or stroke, like high blood pressure. Modelling from NHS England suggests that the decline in blood pressure management since the pandemic began could lead to an extra 11,190 heart attacks and 16,702 additional strokes over a three-year period. We have urged the government, the British Heart Foundation, says to tackle the heart care crisis head on with a heart strategy that can deliver for current and future heart patients. Well, the government doesn't have a heart to start with, so they'll have to learn what one is first. Anyway, the article continues. Our chief executive, Dr. Charmaine Griffith, said, It is devastating that the ongoing extreme disruption to heart care has contributed to 30,000 more families losing a loved one. Today, many hundreds of thousands of people fear that their heart condition could get worse before they get treatment, potentially stopping them from working or enjoying a full life. Many more are completely unaware they now have a condition putting them at greater risk of early death from heart attack or stroke. There is not a moment to lose. The urgent needs of heart patients and NHS staff must be heard. As this new government draws up its priorities for healthcare, a heart strategy must be at the top of the agenda to prevent more heartbreak and needless loss of life. Unfortunately, while a heart strategy should be at the top of the agenda to prevent more heartbreak and needless loss of life, the cult's agenda wants more loss of life. You know, it's cool. That's one of the reasons why the vaccines played out in the first place, or why the COVID hoax was played in the first place. It's justify the vaccine to cause the loss of life, which it is doing on an unprecedented scale already. The article continues. Three months ago, Phil Moore, 50, from near Maidstone, thought he was going to die in a supermarket car park. On the way out of a shop, he had started sweating profusely, feeling dizzy and having heavy pain in his chest. Having worked for the BHF, he knew he was having a heart attack. He struggled back to his car and rang 999 immediately, but had to wait around 40 minutes for an ambulance as he faded in and out of consciousness. Phil said the heart attack came on very suddenly with no warning and it came on very strong whilst slumped in the driver's seat I was fighting to stay conscious. All I could think about was that this could be the place I'd ever be, the worst place I could ever be, I think that's probably meant to say, and I might not see anyone I've ever again. I must have the strength to look at my phone after a while and it had been 20 minutes since I called it for an ambulance. I redialed my 99 and pleaded with the call handler to send an ambulance quickly. I don't think I answered many of their questions. It's now all very hazy. Forty minutes later, the ambulance arrived and rushed me straight to the emergency cardiac unit for an angioplasty, a procedure that widens and narrowed or blocked arteries so blood can flow more easily. It was very scary. 
because it goes through your mind that I want to speak to my wife again. I want to speak to my children again, but you don't know if you're going to. The article continues. Our Associate Medical Director, Dr. Sonia Babu Narayan, said, Far too many people continue to face long waits for time-sensitive heart care, putting them at higher risk of becoming more unwell the longer they wait with potentially devastating consequences. Delays on such an extreme scale are likely leading to avoidable emergency admissions, permanent heart damage, disability from heart failure and early death. There are not enough NHS staff to deal with the ever-rising tide of heart problems and those that remain are overstretched, overwhelmed and close to leaving. This cannot become business as usual. Heart care staff need fit-for-purpose facilities and a clear plan so patients can receive their time critical care, allowing them to lead a fuller, healthier life away from hospital beds and waiting rooms. A publication of the British Heart Foundation, Tipping Point, comes one year after uh, it told of the immense impact of the pandemic on heart patients in 2021's Untold Heart Rate Report. The new analysis examines how heart care services are on a cliff edge, laying out the significant changes required to relieve the pressure on the NHS across the areas of care and support public health and prevention and cardiovascular disease research. And that report is on the website on the page of this article. Now, I talk in the new book about the COVID fake vaccine, and I've got a whole chapter which runs to 114 pages looking at the fake vaccine and destroying the idea that it's either safe or effective. I've got three chapters on the COVID hoax. The first chapter covers the hoax. The second one looks at Many of the people, not all of them, because there's too many to include, but many of the people and organisations who were involved, including many people I've never heard of before. Some people will have heard of them, but a lot of people haven't. And the psychological manipulation which made the hoax possible, and how the hoax was pulled off. And the third chapter looks at the COVID vaccine. Altogether, the three chapters run to 354 pages. And now we've got people in the public eye, like journalists, TV presenters, doctors, etc., apologising and admitting they made a mistake promoting the COVID vaccine and calling for vaccine passports, fake vaccines. You've had the media trying to cover its tracks by reporting now what they should have been investigating and reporting at the time. We've had calls for amnesty. No way. No way. Those responsible must be held to account and be made to take responsibility for their actions. Whereas those who have a mind of their own, did their own research and looked to alternative sources instead of just accepting what the mainstream said without a first thought, never mind a second one, found that COVID was indeed a giant hoax and they don't need to apologise or ask for forgiveness and amnesty because they never asked anyone to do anything. They never mandated anything. They never excluded anyone. They never pressured anyone to take the fake vaccine. And they were right in their assertion that COVID was a hoax. This is the reward you get for sticking to your convictions and doing your own research. And when you studied this cult and its agenda for half your life as I have, then you know before the pharmaceutical companies apply for permission for the vaccine to be rolled out, that they're going to be granted permission from the regulatory agencies. And the pharmaceutical companies, governments, Health and regulatory agencies are all assets of the same one cult web, and so all web is one unit in line with the cult's agenda. And this fake vaccine was known to be incredibly dangerous to health. A Pfizer document entitled Cumulative Analysis of Post-Authorization Adverse Event Reports of PF-073-2048, BNT162B2, received through 28 February 2021, lists adverse events of special interest states starting on page 30 which runs to nine pages interestingly conditions like herpes zoster pentagoid toxic epidermal necrolysis and stevens johnson syndrome are listed and this these can all give rise apparently to pox on the skin including the hands which can be mistaken for monkey pox which of course disappeared because nobody took it seriously and the same would have happened with covid if nobody took that seriously. Anyway, the Gates-funded MHRA, the Medicines Health and Regulatory Agency in Britain, in October 2020, tendered for an artificial intelligence software tool 
to process what they called an expected high volume of COVID-19 vaccine adverse drug reactions. How can you approve a product you expect to cause a high volume of adverse reactions unless you are psychopathic? And of course, the Pfizer documents, as we now know, they tried to suppress, included 158,000 known adverse reactions. But Pfizer still sought approval for their vaccine, including for younger and younger children. And all this is tantamount to murder, a definition of which is killing a person with malice of forethought or with recklessness manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. The public were denied informed consent by not being informed about the potential for a high number of adverse reactions which were known. And all these people must go before a Nuremberg type trial for crimes against humanity and go to jail for the rest of their lives for the murder they've knowingly committed and we must not stop until that happens. Bank branches, this is in the Daily Mail. Another blow to the high street, NatWest closes 43 branches as it moves more banking online, so is your bank on the list? I won't read the list, but you can find it online. NatWest confirms today that it is closing 43 branches across Britain in the latest move to transition its banking services online. Several banks in Scotland, including in Edinburgh, Glasgow and Aberdeen, are among the fresh wave of closures. Branches in Coventry, Cheltenham, Tombridge and Kent, Ballam and South London and Thames and Oxfordshire will also shut next year. The UK's second biggest lender said the vast majority of its retail banking services can be done digitally and it is the quicker and easier way to bank. Just six jobs are expected to be put at risk as part of the closures, indicating most staff will be offered the opportunity to take it. Just six jobs are expected to be put at risk as part of the closures, indicating most staff will be offered the opportunity to take up a role in a different branch or another part of the business. The branches will close between January and March next year. NatWest said it will contact its vulnerable customers to provide support following the announcement. The group acknowledged some customers might be worried by the closure of their local branch, particularly if they are uncomfortable or unable to use online banking, but it will ensure no one is left behind. A NatWest spokesman said, as with many industries, most of our customers are shifting to mobile and online banking because it is faster and easier for people to manage their financial lives. We understand and recognize that digital solutions are not right for everyone or every situation and that when we close branches we have to make sure that no one is left behind. We took our responsibility seriously to support the people who face challenges moving online so we are investing to provide them support and alternatives that work for them. The article continues, several high street banks have said customers are ditching local branches in favour of mobile banking. NatWest said average counter transactions had shrunk by nearly two thirds in just two years between January 2019 and January this year. It saw a 38% rise in customers using mobile apps during the same period. But the company stressed it has a helpline to guide customers through setting up online and mobile services with a shorter waiting time for the over 60s. It has also invested in its partnership with the post office so people can access cash and face-to-face banking services if they cannot do it digitally, the group said. The latest closures add to the 32 announced back in February, which include 11 of its Royal Bank of Scotland branches. Most staff will move to other branches at that time, but 12 jobs were put at risk. The move also comes just two days after the Financial Conduct Authority said it was toughening up guidance on branch closures, saying lenders had to make sure an alternative was in place beforehand. The FCA guidance, which already sets out expectations for banks to carry out thorough checks on the impact that permanent closures will have on customers, has been extended. It now covers partial closures, such as removing counter services or permanently reducing opening hours in a way which would have a significant impact on customers. For example, reducing opening hours on a busy morning might result in a relatively small change in hours, but could have a significant impact on customers' ability to access branch services. The conversion of free-to-use ATMs to pay-to-use ones is also included in the guidance. The FCA's 2022 Financial Lives Survey found around a fifth, 21%, of adults with a day-to-day account had regularly used a particular branch over the previous year. People who are most likely to regularly use a branch included those with characteristics of vulnerability, such as those in poor health, 27%, and those in financial difficulty, 27%. In March, a study by which Van Britain had lost nearly 5,000 high street banks in a decade, sparking fears that the elderly, vulnerable, and those living in rural areas are effectively being cut adrift from face-to-face banking. Figures showed there were more than 13,300 banks in cities, towns, and villages across the UK in 2012, down from 20,583 in 1988. 
but by the end of last year that figure had dropped even further to just 8,810, a staggering 34% decrease in less than a decade. With thousands of banks now going from high streets up and down the UK, groups such as the Post Office have stepped in to provide daily over the council banking services for people in rural communities. But campaigners and charities for the elderly say the decision to close village and town centre banks is proving extremely damaging for local communities and a serious blow for millions of older Britons. In other closure news, Marks and Spencer said it was seeking to speed up a major shakeup of its store estate, which will result in 67 larger shops being shut. And there's another money-related story here. Digital currency. This is in the Daily Mail. The Bitcoin revolution. Rishi Sunak plans to introduce official digital currency to rival cash and biggest upheaval in the monetary system for centuries. Cash in people's pockets will be superseded by a new Bitcoin digital currency and the plan being pushed by Chancellor Rishi Sunak. In what Treasury insiders say would be the biggest upheaval in the monetary system for centuries, the Bank of England will establish a direct digital equivalent to physical money and take control of it in the same way as sterling. Its supporters in the Treasury say that it would allow the bank to give the economy a boost in times of financial crisis by paying the Bitcoins directly into people's bank accounts. It could also slash the cost and time it takes to make payments online and transfer money around the banking system. Bitcoin can also cut banking costs dramatically for small firms. However, critics warn that the digital version of the pound could lead to greater financial instability, making it harder for the bank to regulate the economy with monetary policies such as setting interest rates. There are also fears the introduction of Bitcoin would lead to higher loan and mortgage rates as millions of people switch cash to central bank digital currency, eating into the amount of money high street banks have on deposit to lend to borrowers. A task force of Treasury and bank officials set up to examine the merits of Bitcoin, known as the central bank digital currency, is expected to report to Mr. Sinat by the end of the year. The Treasury is understood to be more keen than the Bank of England on the idea of creating an official British digital currency to compete with the rise of Bitcoin because they are wary of the huge numbers of people piling into cryptocurrencies. Some investors have lost vast sums as the price of Bitcoin has gyrated wildly. Other countries are racing to develop their own digital currencies. China has been testing a digital yuan. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has hinted that a digital dollar could be created and the European Central Bank is investigating plans for a digital euro. Unlike Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin will be linked to the value of the pound backed by the central bank. That, in theory, should stop it from swinging massively in value. Under plans being considered by officials, consumers might be able to hold the currency in accounts directly linked to the Bank of England. Officials are undecided on whether to attach interest rates to Bitcoin, which might make it attractive to savers as an alternative to cash. Retailers and other companies could accept the digital currency for ordinary payments that customers would otherwise have made with a debit or credit card, but the amount of money each individual could hold in Bitcoin is likely to be limited initially. Crucially, consumers would be able to change pound sterling into Bitcoin with ease. It would also be made very simple and very fast to transfer Bitcoin back into ordinary cash that could be taken out of an ATM. That might help avoid the type of long queues that occurred when thousands tried to get their money out of Northern Rock in 2007. A digital currency where customers have accounts directly linked to the Bank of England would also make it far easier to issue so-called helicopter money where funds are injected into people's pockets by the government. This could prove a more effective way of stimulating the economy in times of crisis than quantitative easing, which has been used since the 2009 financial crisis to flood the banking system with new money, but the scheme has been criticised for storing potential inflation while failing to get the cash to trickle down to households and businesses and the rest of the economy. So what is this all about? So what is this all about? Well, I've talked many times about the cashless society agenda, and this is another expression of moving towards that agenda. I talked a couple of episodes ago about an article predicting the end of cash in five years. The more bank branches disappear and banking activity is moved online, the more centralised banking becomes, as instead of lots and lots of branches all over the place, there's now one website for each bank for online banking. This is a stepping stone to the one world centralised banking system dictation all global finance that I've talked about many times before in this podcast. Moving banking online also means a lot of elderly people are going to be at a disadvantage and will have to get younger people to help them. I've talked before about a Rockefeller insider, Dr. Richard Day, and he talked about elderly people being phased out, which I've talked about before, and those elderly people having to ask younger people to help them. The fine detailed nature of the cult's agenda is such that, as Dr. Day said, print on documents would be made tiny so elderly people would struggle to read it and would have to ask younger people to read it for them. And we see the same with very tight lids on jars, which younger people can open. 
If you want to phase out the elderly physically, you need to also phase them out psychologically so they think their time is coming to an end. They've lived their life and they should step aside for the younger generation. And that has a, an effect on the body as well because the body is only what the mind perceives it to be. I'm going to talk about this in the Reality Check podcast in more detail. The COVID hoax and the human-caused climate change hoax fuse with the same solutions for both. One example is a digital ID system which will combine vaccination history, carbon footprint and social media activity. The plan is that this digital ID will be used as a digital currency eventually embedded under the skin. And I talk in the new book about the microchip agenda and the nanotechnology agenda. The digital ID system is planned to connect with the global smart grid, which is being proposed to save the world from human-caused climate change, which is not happening, uh, which would see everything, including the human mind, connected to AI. And this is the end game of the cult's agenda. And the final subject this week is power cuts. This is in The Guardian. How would three-hour power cuts work if enacted in Great Britain? People in England, Scotland and Wales are braced for the possibility of rolling power cuts this winter after a warning from the national grid. The electricity and gas system operator has said households could face a series of three-hour power cuts if Vladimir Putin shuts off gas supplies from Russia and Britain experiences a cold snap akin to 2018's beast from the east. Although National Grid has labelled this scenario unlikely, the emergency plan has prompted memories of persistent power outages in the 1970s and brought into focus the process by which people are cut off. The system of rotor disconnection or rotor load shedding is designed to equally share out the available power in a country or region through strategic shutdowns. In Great Britain, consumers in different parts of the country would be notified a day in advance of a three-hour block of time during which they would lose power. Households in different areas would then be cut off at different times or days with the frequency rising depending on the severity of the supply shortage. The process is in legislation under the Electricity Supply Emergency Code. There are 14 licensed areas of the country. Within these, there are smaller areas or different circuits that have a timetable for cutoffs. The aim is to reduce power usage by about 5% through the three-hour disconnections. Consumers would typically be notified with a text message similar to when there was a planned outage for maintenance work. An emergency public information campaign by National Grid and the government deployed across radio, billboards and social media platforms to urge people to use less energy. The starting principle in the energy industry is to avoid disruption to consumers as long as it is safe to do so. With this in mind, the business department has spent months discussing usage with businesses, including large manufacturers which use a lot of energy, about how to change their shift patterns away from times of peak demand. Households are now involved too through a new demand flexibility service which incentivizes consumers not to turn on appliances when demand is high, such as during early evenings. However, if demand is still stretched after this intervention and standby coal plants have been fired up, then consumers may start to experience brownouts in which the electrical voltage drops. For households, that means lights may flicker more. At that point, rotor disconnection could be employed. Arcane legislation shows that the process cannot be enacted until the monarch gives their approval. An order in council would need to be approved by King Charles, taken on the advice of his privy council after a recommendation by the business secretary. Businesses can apply for protected site status to avoid disconnection. Certain manufacturers, such as steel plants where coal-fired blast furnaces run constantly, are already exempt if shutdowns for three-hour periods would cause significant financial damage. Other designated sites with exemptions include hospitals, oil refineries, gas terminals, electricity generators, water treatment plants, armed forces bases and telecom sites. Transport would be supported too with airports, railways and ports allowed to run smoothly. The human-caused climate change hoax has shut down pipelines and stopped investment in carbon-based fuel. Coal use has also stopped and this impacts the ability of the West to be self-sufficient. In America, for example, Biden targeting the main artery of the Russian economy is targeting the main artery of the American economy. 
banning Russian oil and gas drives the price higher in the West. Russia has China watching its back energy-wise, and Russia also has autonomous oil and gas reserves and revenue in the trillions. The Russia-Ukraine the Russia-Ukraine conflict will have far more devastating consequences for the West than Russia and China, with self-destructive sanctions and their obvious effect on the economy, bringing the West to its knees and opening the door for the introduction of the Klaus Schwab World Economic Forum Great Reset. The war between Russia and Ukraine has increased the price of oil and gas. Money was hosed with no limits at the COVID hoax, which has caused massive inflation, affecting prices for so many products and commodities, including the price of oil, which affects the transport of food. Russia is the biggest exporter of oil and gas in the world. The cost of diesel has massively increased as a result of the human-caused climate change hoax, which has widespread implications for the cost of living. And so all the subjects I've covered in this episode connect because they're all part of the same agenda orchestrated by a global cult with no borders which operates in every country. I talked last year in this podcast in a segment called Cyber Hacking about a planned cyber attack which could target the power supply and computer systems of homes and businesses. The theme of a power outage, manufactured or in this case officially at least energy saving, has been on the agenda for a while now. Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum talked about it last year. It's all about breaking the human spirit so the cult can just impose their agenda with minimal resistance. A secret society connected to the Labour Party in Britain is the Fabian Society, named after a Roman general called Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus. Romans loved their long names, didn't they? And one of his methods of taking over a country or group was to gradually wear them down so his army could win a battle and take over with minimal effort. And that's what's being done to people worldwide now on behalf of this cult. And that's why we need to be strong with great fortitude and determination to protect freedom and basic human rights and to intervene in the cult's agenda so we can live in a world which respects people instead of degrading, manipulating and controlling people. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.